HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome, everybody. It's so nice to see all of your faces here. Hello. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler. I'm the Executive Director of Heritage Radio Network, and we couldn't be more thrilled to welcome you. This is the first event of our spring live event series, first out of three. And um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> we, we need a woo here and there. You guys can all feel free to woo, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> So we're going to have um, two more of these coming up in this series. They're the second Wednesday of the month, so come back for April and May, please. You can find out more about those on our website. I'll tell you more about that in just a second. But we're so excited to be here collaborating with Farm to People. Thank you for having us. Thank you for this beautiful space and an amazing partnership. Um, wanted to let you guys know, in case you're not already aware, Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. We are dedicated to making a more equitable, sustainable, and delicious world by changing the ways that eaters think about food. And we've been doing this since 2009. You might be with, familiar with our studio over at Roberta's Pizza. We're in the shipping container out back. Come say hi. Wave at us in the window. And we produce dozens of podcasts about food, beverage, agriculture, anything to do with the space. You're going to be hearing from um, hosts of several of our shows here tonight. And we also have an amazing internship program. That's how I first got involved. And we produce live events. And um, you can follow us and learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Really encourage you, if you haven't already, please sign up for our newsletter. There's a clipboard out front where you came in to do that, or you can do it on our website. Um, and follow us at heritage underscore radio, Instagram, Twitter. That's a great place to stay abreast of what's coming up, find out about new shows, sign up for our next events. Um, and I also wanted to let you know that we have a membership program and you can get our limited edition 2023 t-shirt, which is up front too. You can visit my friend Joanna. Where is she? There she is. Um, go see Joanna up front for those. Um, also, you can do that on our website. I wanted to say a huge thank you to the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs for supporting our New York City-based live events and also for supporting our work documenting New York City foodways. 
Uh, now it is my great pleasure to introduce Michael Robinoff. He's the co-founder and CEO of Farm to People. Michael's mission at Farm to People is to raise New Yorkers' consciousness about regenerative farming and about eating delicious, ethically grown food. And he's right here to tell you more. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, and thank you to Heritage Radio Network for this wonderful um, evening, the first of three. Really excited to see you all here tonight. Um, I want to just introduce um, Harry Rosenblum, who is uh, the host of two um, Heritage Radio Network shows, Time for Lunch and Feast Your Ears, um, and also the co-founder of The Brooklyn Kitchen, um, which I'm going to quickly say is like really the kind of the crux of so much that you're experiencing here tonight and uh, the beginning of our relationship. And I've just been a, a huge fan and admirer of your work for so long and what you built with the Brooklyn Kitchen. We actually even shared a space briefly in 2018. It was a great time, um, I think, dearly of those days and of you and, and, and Taylor. So anyway, um, it's, uh, it, was a, it was a beautiful space. And what Brooklyn Kitchen did, pioneering... Um, local food and, 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 and small batch makers here in Brooklyn um, starting in 2006, um, you know, when I was still in high school. Um, uh, really just taking that consciousness and, and, and getting people to, like, support small makers and, and small farmers is incredible, and we want to continue to, you know, carry that torch here at, at, at Farm to People. Um, sorry, um, back to programming. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Also, Harry, and uh, I, I remember this when you were sh just publishing the book in 2017. He launched uh, his first cookbook, Vinegar Revival. Um, it's awesome. It's all about um, different fermentation techniques, um, and uh, he still teaches classes. Um, uh, both cooking and fermentation classes as part of Brooklyn Kitchen, which is really the rendition of Brooklyn Kitchen now, which is more of a cooking school. Um, and finally, um, Harry serves on the board of Eating with the Ecosystem, which focuses on promoting sustainable local seafood caught in the waters off of New England. Um, I'm so excited for this evening to see you all here. We'll have a small menu from our kitchen and, and, and bar after, so if you want to stick around, have a drink, try a couple bites, they'll be featuring different fermentation things as well um, and I can't wait to hear this panel this evening so thank you for coming thanks Michael uh, I also think fondly of those days it was a it was a fun time um, so thanks everybody for for coming um, we're gonna talk about fermentation and talk about microbes up here and I am honored to be joined by uh, my three panelists here to my right to your left uh, I'm gonna let them introduce themselves but just to in brief um, Mary Isette right to my to my right, um, has uh, been, I've known Mary for I don't know how many years, uh, as a brewer, as a home brewer, as a professional brewer, as a cookbook author, um, talked a lot about fermentation over the years. Peter Kim uh, it was the founder of MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, uh, which I hope many, if not all of you are familiar with, now works at Pinterest and heads up food over at Pinterest. Uh, and Lily Harris uh, is joining us actually all the way from Los Angeles, where she lives. Um, she is a holistic health practitioner uh, and a healthy recipe developer. And so we're going to talk about today's conversation is really, I want to focus on fermentation at home. 
um, Mary and her partner Chris and Zephyr, uh, who's in the back there, uh, do own a, a brewery that you know brews beer and sells it to people as a job and it is like a profession. Um, but that's not really what I wanted to cover with this. I wanted to cover how can people incorporate fermentation into their daily lives and into what I refer to as like a personal culinary canon. Right, like I find that over the years, as I've gotten older, I have recipes. Some of them came from my grandmother, my mom. Some of them came from a cookbook that I happen to like. Some of them came from the internet. Uh, some of them came out of my brain that I go back to over and over again. And like, how can you develop and culture fermented goods and fermented foods kind of into that? Um, but first, I'd like you guys to give your own introductions of like who you are and uh, how did you end up on this panel? Mary, you can start. Um. Well, I'm Mary Izette, as you mentioned. Uh, we also, Chris and I also hosted Foment About It, which was on Heritage Radio Network for about five years. We're on like a long-term hiatus because we built a brewery and we now have a small baby. Um, but, but I think through Foment About It, we, I, so I started as a home brewer um, a long time ago and then went into commercial brewing. But along the way, through Foment About It and a lot of other things, we met so many fermenters from around the world and really got to explore the world of fermentation. Um, and I think that's why I'm here. I love yeah. fermenting and fermentation. Like, it's a wonderful way to make very healthy, delicious foods. Yeah, I'm Peter, and I just want to say I'm, like, so thrilled to be here to, to meet Lily, meet Mary, and then I've been a big fan of Harry's for a long time. I'm a subscriber to Farm the People, big fan of the produce, flavor is on point, the freshness is on point, so good, so flavorful. Um, and uh, in Heritage Radio Network, you know, I've been, I've bickered with Dave Arnold a lot on Heritage Radio Network. I've been on your show, um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of, when I was built, developing MoFad, was working alongside Heritage Radio Network and, you know, we're sort of um, a partner organization. So a lot of respect for HRN. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I'm a, I'm a food guy, a food nerd. Uh, you know, started the Museum of Food and Drink. Our motto was food is culture. And, you know, in that sense, culture could be could take two different uh, meanings in the sense of it being your identity. But also, there's a lot of uh, fermentation that happens within cultures. Uh, and so, you know, I think... I kind of intersected obliquely uh, with whatever we were doing. There was always some fermentation element to it. And uh, if you were ever behind the scenes at MoFed, we always had a crazy panoply of fermentations happening behind the scene just for fun. Um, you know, every, we, there was, yeah, I don't even want to get into it. There was just like, it was like a lab in the back. And then, um, and yeah, I have, a, I have a podcast I do with Food 52 on food, music, and culture. Um, music's my other big, big passion, but... Uh, and then, yeah, and I'm at Pinterest now, and I, I oversee our North America team. Um, but, yeah, that's me. What don't you do? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my name is Lily Harris. I'm a holistic health practitioner and healthy recipe developer. I do live in L.A. now, but I used to live a couple blocks away, and I'm a very, very happy Farm to People customer. I'm in town for two weeks, and I got my box delivered to my apartment. <laughs> I love it so much. I love cooking from home. Really, I'm the home cook here. I'm just trying to make home cooking easy, nutritious, delicious, take some of the intimidation away from it, and that's me. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Um, so I think you know everybody who came to a panel on fermentation, uh, I'm sure, is aware of fermentation one way or another. Most of you are probably drinking a fermented beverage uh, right now. 
Um, and so I'm not gonna go into and delve into like the history of ferment specific fermentations or anything like that, but I just wanted to start by kind of talking a little bit about how like fermentation ends up in your, in your regular life, right? Um, I don't know about anybody in the audience. Show of hands, how many people bake bread? How many, keep your hands up. Put your hand, keep your hands up if you started baking bread during the pandemic. <laughs> All right, so a <laughs> couple of people. Um, I had a long uh, history with sourdough starters. I killed a bunch of them over the last like 15 years. Because I, I would get busy and I would forget about it in the back of the fridge. And I felt like I had, it was like a, it's like a weird relationship where like sometimes me and the sourdough really got along and sometimes we really didn't get along and we would ignore each other. And for whatever reason, I mean not for whatever, because I was stuck at home with nothing to do, I started a new starter uh, in April of 2020 that has been alive, uh, and there's someone in the audience tonight that has some of that same starter, and has been alive ever since, and I now have a great relationship with, and I bake at least once a week, and I have managed to fit it into my life. Back before, when I killed all those starters, obviously it wasn't the right time for me, it wasn't the right time for the sourdough starter, we didn't have a good relationship. But now, me and the starter, we get along, and maybe it's because this starter is different, um, maybe it acts a little different, I act a little different, who knows, right? But it, it is a relationship that we have. And now I, I bake bread, and you know, what are the reasons for that? The reasons for that for me are so that I know where my food is coming from, and I find that I am able to be in better control of how I feel after I eat the food. So for me, a big piece of fermentation over the years has become about how you feel on the other side of it, right? So looking at how am I going to feel after I eat this? And so if we're eating commercial uh, breads and commercial pickles, and I wrote a whole book about vinegar and vinegar pickles, but I actually feel better after I eat fermented pickles most of the time. Um, so really trying to think about like what is the goal of why are we doing that fermentation? Um, so, Lily, I would love to, to hear from you about, like, how do you incorporate fermentation into the work you do when you're developing a recipe? I think, for the most part, I do leave the fermentation recipes to the pros, but I just kind of wing it in my kitchen. So, usually it's um, creative problem solving. If I, I buy a lot of produce, I do write recipes, so there's a lot of stuff lingering in my fridge, and usually it's a really great way to make it last longer, make it more bioavailable, easy to digest. Um, I also really like to, once I can them, I like to give them to friends, bring them over when I go to their house. That's usually how it works out. I, before I moved, when I lived in New York, I had a very religious weekly um, sourdough practice. I'm a celiac, so I can't eat gluten, and gluten-free bread is bad. It's so bad. <laughs> like, it's not worth eating in my opinion, the ingredients can be really, really long list of who knows what they are. So I think probably 2019, I bought um, Aran Goyagas. I think I'm saying her name right. She has the most beautiful um, gluten-free cookbook. And I started making her rice flour sourdough. Um, every week I would do it, and it just became a really relaxing practice in the chaos of New York City. So um, I accidentally left my starter in my fridge when I moved, which was very, very sad. But I am going to make a new one very soon. We'll get there. Awesome. Um, so Peter, you grew up in a Korean-American home. 
And so kimchi was around a lot, right? When did you become aware that it was a fermented food rather than, you know what I mean? Like, the, like in, in the world, we kind of, I feel like that we live in now in food, there's discussions about, oh, this is a fermented thing and this is not a fermented thing or whatever. But like growing up, there was just kimchi, right? Well, I wasn't aware of it being fermented for a while, but I definitely was aware of it being funky pretty early on. <laughs> and, you know, I think, you know, on a serious note, and I think probably a lot of, like, immigrant children can identify with this, but it was a source of shame uh, from a pretty early age. And at a certain point, uh, you know, I think when I was really little, I ate it with, with glee. And then when I was an adolescent, it became a source of shame. And I remember just sort of... Uh, being so worried about that moment when somebody was going <laughs> to open the fridge and then that like burp of air comes out and you're like, ugh. And then, you know. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it certainly was a part of our life. And we, like uh, a lot of other Korean American families, and by the way, I grew up in like small town Midwest. And so it wasn't exactly like bustling Korean community. It was a very small number of Korean families linked together by this like church. Um, and uh, we had like, yeah, the kimchi fridge in the garage, but we were very much anomalies in this mostly like non-Korean environment we were in. Um, the time at which I became aware of it being something really fermented was when I read uh, Harold McGee's On Food and Cooking, uh, which was kind of like an overall like sort of culinary awakening for me. And so if any of you have not read Harold McGee's On Food and Cooking, I really think of that as being like the one book that you should really read if you want to learn about food, including fermentation, really anything. And it's just really poetically and beautifully written. Um, and, and so I think it was really a, upon reading that, I was like, oh, aha, like, I didn't know that all of these, this is what was going on in the kimchi. To me, it was just this like funky cabbage that was so loaded and, and kind of like shameful, honestly. Right. And, and so as an adult, have you come, like, do you make your own kimchi now at home? Oh, yeah. So I would say that's probably the most, I mean, there's pretty much always a thing of kimchi going in the fridge at this point. Uh, and so, I mean, I've definitely, I mean, at, at a pretty young age in my, like, 20s, I turned around and was like, oh, kimchi is actually really cool. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I wish I could go back to, like, my, like, high school, like, self and be like, yo, like, you should be proud of this. This is, like, right. tradition and culture and, and, and deliciousness, frankly. Yeah. Um, Mary, when did you start? down the path of fermentation uh, with beer? So the first thing I ever, I had made ginger beer a long time, like probably 25 years ago. Um, and it did not work. I mean, it worked, it fermented, but it was terrifying. Because um, I did it in glass bottles. Anyway, it was an unstable ferment. So that was like a bad introduction. And then um, when I moved, a f well, I started homebrewing in 2006, I think, 2003, something like that, 2006. Um, and that's when I went down the rabbit hole. So I would, I got really into craft beer and all the flavors of craft beer. And I would go to Beer Craft, which was this phenomenal bottle shop that used to be in Park Slope. And Ben Granger, who worked there at the time and is now still works in beer, just fixed our, fixed our centrifuge at the brewery, actually. Full circle. <laughs> um, you know, I'd ask him all these questions. He's like, why don't you start homebrewing? And so I started homebrewing. And that's how I met uh, my husband and and we opened this brewery, and here we are. So. Do you still brew at home? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the brewery kind of took over everything. But I, I think that I will get back to it at some point. Also, I wrote a book on fast-fermented alcoholic beverages um, 
in 2016, I think. Um, and then we opened the brewery in 2017. So I think it was a lot of, I, you know, I was, had like 48 different alcoholic beverages fermenting in my fridges at one time. We had four, when I moved in with Chris, we had four um, chest freezers that were either fermentation units or kegerators or whatever. Um, we just actually gave away the last one like a month ago. Um, so, so I think at that point there was, I just had to, step away for, for a little bit. <laughs> right, right. But but you point out that it'll, it may come back in oh, the yeah. future. Oh, and oh you, it definitely and you, will. And you plan yes. to come back to yes, it. Yes, yes. Um, do you have any yeah. fermented stuff at home right now? Not that I'm fermenting. So we have an eight and a half month old and I'm a first, first this is our first child. So um, I would say I've been a little overwhelmed. Sure. <laughs> Just trying to juggle oh, everything. A... We're still running the brewery. Yeah. Um, so we eat fermentate, fermented foods, but I haven't been fermenting so i think though it's like as she grows up and starts participating then we will definitely start fermenting again yeah i mean kids are a whole different i mean uh i don't i don't mean to leave you out lily i don't think you have any kids right i don't it's cool (laughs) (laughs) the the other three of us do um you know i i find my kids relationships to fermentation to be very interesting um you know it, it was just around the house obviously right like i mean i you know I always have lots of things uh, fermenting all the time. I have kombucha on the shelf. Uh, I brought, and after this panel, you'll have an opportunity to taste. I have two different uh, sauerkrauts, one that's about three weeks old and one that's actually older than Chris and Mary's daughter, Zephyr. Uh, (laughs) It's about 14 months old. It was in the cold part of my basement, uh, and I put it into a a quart container uh, yesterday. Uh, to bring here from the crock. Um, I also have some bread-based kvass because when you're baking a lot of bread, you end up, you know, we don't eat all the bread, so I save the hard ends and I make kvass, which I can explain how to do that later if anybody's interested, come and find me. Um, But there's a lot of fermented stuff around and there's fermented pickles and stuff. And I don't, I've never like forced it on my kids. um, But, you know, last year at some point, my older one is 13 and my younger one is nine. We were, you know, I had pickles out on the table at dinner and one of them challenged the other one and said, come on, let's do a shot of pickle juice. And I just sort of like sat back and it was like the most fun thing to watch my kids. And they took like three or four shots of like pickle brine. And I was like, you know, you guys just invented the pickleback. Uh, <laughs> um, it was, it, but, but it was really, you know, it, it was really fun. Um, Peter, you know, do you find, does Felix like fermented stuff? It is like a great sadness for me that when he was young, he loved kimchi, and now he just will refuse it. So he's just going through an anti-kimchi phase. Sure. Um, He'll get over it. You know, like a good Asian parent, I've disowned him for now, and then I will (laughs) welcome him back in once he's ready for kimchi. I'm kidding, Uh, of course. So, Peter, you mentioned that you have kimchi in your refrigerator pretty much at all times. Do you have, are there other fermented things that you uh, keep around uh, or sort of seek out? Well, what, what I um, make for myself is just usually, honestly, it's just kimchi. I haven't really dabbled in a whole lot more, though sometimes I'll have, like, little projects. I'll try making, like, injera or, like, you know, um, uh, I recently tried to make uh, baton de manioc or bobolo, the, the central African, like, uh, cassava sticks, which are really delicious. Um, but, uh, no, otherwise, you know, I think whenever I go shopping at a, if I go to a neighborhood in New York City, I will go to the grocery, uh, that is associated with a culture that is predominant in that neighborhood and then find the, like, fermented stuff and just kind of, like, grab it. So usually there's just some, like, random odds and ends in the refrigerator, uh, that from just New York City, like, exploration. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a great point, right? Like, if, if you are looking for fermented foods to kind of fit into your life, I mean, I feel like there, there's been, in the past few years, like, a huge zeitgeist around Asian foods, right? So, like, almost everybody knows about kimchi now. Um, but... Peter lived in Africa for a time and mentions Africa. There's a huge, you know, every culture on earth has fermented foods and beverages. And there are a lot that I don't think have quite hit the zeitgeist yet. Um, so looking at South America, looking at Africa, um, you know, lo looking at some that may never hit the zeitgeist, right? Like uh, kumis. Has anybody tasted kumis in the audience? Raise your hand. Anybody know what kumis is? I'm sure Mary knows what kumis is. Kumis is fermented mare's milk that they drink in, uh, in Kazakhstan, um, which apparently is very delicious. Apparently, horse milk is very sweet, um, and so they ferment it, and it gets slightly effervescent, and you can actually buy it commercially um, there, but it you know, hasn't really hit the American palate yet. You can get it in Brighton Beach. There you go. <laughs> uh, you can even Field get trip. Uh, not just horse fermented horse milk. You can get fermented camel milk. Oh, wow. Yeah. Got it. Sure. Just that point. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, back, you know, so, the, so I guess the, the point I was making is, like, if you are interested in fermented foods and there's all kinds of reasons to be interested in them, whether it is how it makes you feel or whether it is uh, based on, you know, palate, based on flavor that you're developing, um, there are a lot of other food cultures out there that are doing interesting fermented flavors. Lily, what about you? What do you have in your, uh, in your kitchen uh, or that you'd like to seek out in terms of fermented foods? Right now, I have some preserved apple cores sitting on my counter that I'm, I want to use on a roast chicken, but I haven't had time. We'll get there. Um, I have preserved lemons, preserved oranges. I have a ginger ap apple sauerkraut in my fridge. I'm like mapping out my fridge in my brain. Um, I think that's it right now, right now, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, one of the things that you, you brought up in there um, has to do with, like, limiting waste, right? Like, you mentioned apple cores. Um, you know, one of the things that I find is a, is a great thing for, to use as a base for fermentation is, like, how do we take things that we used to look at as waste and how do you make them into something, right? You can take apple cores, you can make those into vinegar, um, you know, I wouldn't call it an apple cider vinegar, but you could make it into an apple vinegar. I'm sure, Mary, you have some things in your book probably for using up those kinds of, um, th those sorts of so-called so -called waste items. Um, the, the bread kvass that I brought, right, that is leftover bread that otherwise, I suppose if I like had a homestead and had a pig, I could feed them to the pig. Um, but otherwise, what am I going to do with them? I can throw them out, I can compost them, or I can turn them into a beverage. And for the, you know, also you can get kvass in Brighton Beach, right? Yeah. Eastern European uh, beverage, usually based on dry old rye bread um, that is re-fermented into kind of an, you know, I like to call it like bread soda. Um, and, and the, you know, these things are incredibly easy to make at home. Um, really, it just takes the willingness, I think, to experiment a little bit. Um, and, and the willingness to fail, but it, you know, the barrier is very low and the stakes are very low, especially because you're not talking about, you know, it's not like trying to make, uh, you know, like your first like steakhouse style New York strip at home, right? If you go to the butcher and you buy $80 worth of beef, like I did when I was 22 and I first moved to New York and on the train home, I was like, 
oh my God, if I screw this up, like that was, that's a lot of money. I didn't, you know, uh, I should have gone to a restaurant and had them cook it. If you're using old leftover bread, it was gonna go in the garbage anyway. And the other ingredients for that are like water and some kind of sugar source and a little bit of sourdough starter or some whey. It's really, really a low barrier to entry. Um, so how has, uh, and anybody can feel free to jump in, this can be more of a discussion, I don't have to make it like a pointed like, question. Um, curious to know like, how your relationship to fermented foods has changed in the last couple of years. I guess it's really, like that's kind of me like hiding a question about the pandemic in here. Mm. <laughs> I, think, I have to bow to this because uh, I worked the entire pandemic. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So no change. No change. All right. <laughs> if anything, I was like busier during the pandemic. <laughs> during the pandemic specifically, amid, like amongst all the things that were happening and I mean, a lot of confusion and fear and stuff like that. I was working from home at my old job, so I had a lot of free time. So it did become more of a hobby at that time, which was a beautiful part of the pandemic. Um, I think even before the pandemic, it was very exploratory for me. I was just kind of trying to make all the things that I could with what I had and I would end up with a lot in my house. So I would be sharing them a lot and it was basically like making too much food all the time. Um, now I have my things that I eat all the time. I eat a lot of sauerkraut, I eat a lot of fermented beets, uh, fermented carrots, and that's, those are kind of my things now. But I grew up in Minnesota and I'm half Jewish and I grew up with a lot of either Scandinavian ferments or Jewish ferments. And so now I would definitely like to get more into making the things that I grew up with because they do bring me a sense of comfort. I haven't lived there in so long. So maybe that's next. So Peter, this is a question I guess mostly for you. Um, as someone who spends a lot of time looking at what people post on Pinterest, has, have you seen the amount of uh, fermented recipes and fermented foods change on there oh. in your time there? That's interesting. You know, uh, I would have to say, unfortunately, no. Uh, I, I wish, I mean, there's a lot of funny, like, food content trends, like the cheese pull was big for a while, and then, like, the butter spin in the pan and, you know, things like that. Uh, I'm a little too familiar with all this stuff, but, uh, and it's definitely not like my jam, really. I just really prefer like the kind of slow burn, like really like thoughtful, whatever, longer form stuff. But alas, you know, the kids these days, they like it kind of quick and snappy. But, um, uh, and I don't, you know, I think, uh, unfortunately, no, I haven't actually seen fermentation really take off. And I actually, I would say that probably this is an opportunity, frankly, uh, if you can find a way to present fermentation and really like snappy short form video, uh, there could probably be a good, a good opening there. I'll get right on it. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, totally. It's definitely doable. Yeah, it's like ASMR, like bubbling stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah, years ago uh, at the New York City Fermentation Fest in Greenpoint, I had some submersible uh, 
microphones that we stuck into a jar of sauerkraut and people could listen to the sauerkraut. Um, it didn't say anything, but it would have been cool if it did. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, I, I always think about, uh, like, Fermentation for me, I mean, I got into fermentation originally because I was too young to buy alcohol. Um, when I was 18 and first went to college, the town I went to school in, it was an enterprising family, had a liquor store next to a homebrew shop. And so, like, my friends who were all, like, juniors and seniors would be going to buy beer, but I had a car. So, like, I would drive them to the liquor store, but I couldn't go in, and I was bored, so I went in the homebrew shop. And I was like, oh, this is cool. I can buy all this stuff, and I got a five-gallon bucket, and I buy some this stuff and some yeast sprinkled on top, and you make beer. And my roommates and I made beer, and it was horrible. It was, like, absolutely awful. I wish we'd had Mary's book back then. Um, but we drank it all, of course, because we were like, well, we spent money on this, and we made it, and we're broke college kids. And then I continued to actually learn how to ferment stuff and got interested in cider making, and that led me ultimately to vinegar and, and into fermented foods. And it's hard to imagine for me a time that I was not fermenting at this point. Like, I feel like it's, it's something that is just constant, um, so when people sometimes ask me, like, how do you start? I mean, I, I would always, I always recommend something like sauerkraut, um, because it really takes almost nothing. Like it takes stuff you already have. It takes something to hold the sauerkraut. Like it could be in a bowl. It could be in a jar. It doesn't really matter. Um, you need cabbage, you need salt, and that's really it. It does not require boiling, it doesn't require hops, it doesn't require milled grain, it doesn't require a trip to H-Mart, although that's like one of the most fun things you can possibly do, is go to H-Mart. Um, so that, like, that, that's what I would definitely, where I would recommend that people start. Um, you know, Mary, if someone asked you, like, how do, I, how do I ferment a beverage? Like, what's the easiest recipe in your book? Probably cider is one of the easiest, but really anything with sugar um, and no preservatives or minimal preservatives, if it's got sugar, you can ferment it. You can turn it into an alcoholic beverage for sure. But yeah, I think cider is one of the, or like any kind of fruit juice cider type beverage is the easiest because it really just takes whatever sugar source you're using, whether it be apple juice or some other juice, um, yeast and champagne. You could use a very hearty yeast if you're not sure, um, how of the, you know, pH can sometimes be a challenge with juices, and then usually some type of yeast nutrient. Um, but that's it. Like, and, and if nothing else, like you could just ferment cider with, with no added yeast as well. That's just a little bit, the outcome is a little trickier, and I think using a commercial yeast at the beginning, you'll get more of a, um, more of a good product that will, you know, you It'll make you want out. to come back for exactly, more. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And we, that is one of the things I think it's, it can be discouraging when you ferment something and it doesn't turn out how you wanted it. Um, so I think, you know, oftentimes setting yourself up for success is really important. So but there's a ton of easy ferments yeah, to do. I, mean, I think, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, and, and then if it doesn't come out the way you want it, I mean, that actually, I mean, that's how I got into vinegar making initially was that I made a batch of cider and so, I mean, this is a little bit of, like, fermentation, like, esoterica, but um, there was a period of time, I feel like, when I was really heavy into homebrewing, probably, Mary, when we, like, first met, that people were very particular about not having oxygen come anywhere near your fermentation after it had fermented the alcohol and before you put it in the bottle. It was, like, anathema. You, like, if you did that, it was going to be terrible, and it was going to be crap, and you were going to have to, you know, like, throw it all out. 
And so I was very much in this idea, okay, I made this cider, I had a five gallon carboy of cider in my basement, it was done fermenting, I needed to bottle it, it was like a Sunday night, and I was cheap, so I'd saved bottles from beer that I had drank to put the cider in, and I didn't have enough. I just like, for whatever reason, I just wasn't paying attention, and I like didn't have enough bottles. And so I had like a gallon of cider left in this carboy, and I was like, what am I gonna do with it? It's touch oxygen, oh my God. You know, like it was this terrible thing. <laughs> And then I remembered that I had a bottle of white wine vinegar in my cabinet that had grown this sort of pellicle thing on top. I didn't really know what it was, but I knew that vinegar came from alcohol. I was like, well, if I pour these things together, I think I'm going to get vinegar. And I did. And it turned out that like two months later, I had a gallon of really, really good apple cider vinegar. And when I popped the top on one of the bottles of cider, it was like, fine. Like, it wasn't actually that good. And so that actually really opened my eyes to being like, well, wait a minute. This product, which was a secondary fermentation after the alcohol fermentation, was in fact much better. And I could envision using it in a much better way than I had uh, with the cider that I made. So, like, that is another opportunity, I feel yeah. like. We, I mean, we still have apple cider vinegar that we made from... I did, like, a yeast experiment with cider one year, and I, so I had a lot of cider. And one of the carboys went to vinegar and... We still have some of it that we use in cooking. So, yeah. Um, Peter, the fermentation that you do around kimchi, do you have like a family recipe? Is there like a cultural connection to it? So, uh, I've at, so my favorite, favorite, favorite ferment in the world is my mom's um, oisobegi, which is like the stuffed cucumber kimchi, and it's like the um, like sort of like thin-skinned cucumbers, and then you slice into it, and then you stuff it with shredded vegetables and like uh, garlic chives, buchu, um, and other things, and it's, you know, kimchified. Uh, I've asked her to show me and how to make it, and it's, you know, the classic thing of like, she just like throws it together, and I'm like, but the numbers, you know? And so, uh, what I ended up doing is, I, I, I don't, I am not a Korean grandma, believe it or not. <laughs> so I have accepted the fact that I am incapable of eyeballing kimchi, because I've actually had batches go awry just from like just the wrong size handful. And so uh, what I do, what I did was I actually made a recipe for myself that was all based on relative weights, uh, being the ultra nerd that I am. And so I have a calculator that I made where I just take the weight of the kimchi and I enter it in a spreadsheet and it spits out all of the ingredients for the rest of it. And that works for me, and then I just do everything on the scale, and it's very, like, unsexy, ungrandma-like, but, like, whoa, that's a weird thing to say. <laughs> but, hey, grandmas can be sexy, um, but, um, but, yeah, it's, but it, it's, that's the way I do it, and so I've developed my own kind of, like, weight system, because I find it all intimidating, because, you know, cabbage comes in different shapes and sizes and densities, and it's just, like, the eyeballing thing just is, like, a little intimidating for me, so I do full calculator I mean, I, I think that's awesome. I mean, I don't, you know, like, I would have to imagine that, like, if you were to show that process to somebody 200 years ago, like, I don't, I don't think they would have a problem with it. You know what I mean? Like, if the outcome is delicious kimchi, then the outcome is delicious kimchi. Yeah. Um, Lily, when you're developing recipes, does fermentation play into, like, the balance of the final flavors and that kind of thing? Definitely. Um, last month I shared a breakfast that I eat all the time and I think it came out of just, I used to work a corporate job and I would wake up at five in the morning, 
go get to work by seven and breakfast and meals became something that were like really thrown together. And so I would treat my work refrigerator like it was my home refrigerator, which I think they truly thought I was insane. <laughs> but um, I would always have um, sauerkraut in there and I would do like microgreens, really fibrous crackers, um, half an avocado, sauerkraut, and this za'atar sesame sauce that I would make. And that I ate that meal all the time for years. And so I just share that recipe on my, on my um, Patreon where I share healthy recipes. Um, so I think they come together in bowls a lot. It's always a lot of bowls for me. Um, I think now I actually just got my grandma's recipe box, which is like the most beautiful gift I've ever received. Um, and there's some family classics in there. She made this like really simple marinated tomato, onion, cucumber, and tarragon salad. And I, want, I would like to make a fermented version of that now that I have the recipe and I can see what she put in it. So um, it definitely comes into play. And there's, um, there's actually a recipe that I love that I did make that used... Um, I love pickled beets. I just, I grew up eating them at the Jewish deli. I love them a lot. Um, some of them with vinegar, some of them not. But um, I made a pickled beet with dashi and some rose water in it and cardamom pods. And I like that one a lot. So they do come into play for sure. It sounds delicious. I just want to add, you should try beets with koji. It's incredible, the combination. I will, I will make a mental note of that. I need to try that. <laughs> yeah, we didn't, we didn't really touch much uh, on koji. Um, I, I will say that while I am aware of and love koji and I'm fascinated by koji, um, with two kids and a dog and a very busy life, I, I personally don't do a lot with koji. And so like as someone in the fermentation world, sometimes when I say that, I feel like, oh, I'm such a, like, I should be doing more with koji because koji is like the it ingredient at the moment in lots of ways, because it is magical. Like koji does incredible things as a microbe that a lot of the other ones that we use as humans don't do um, in terms of its ability to work on proteins and also work on starches. And you can have special kojis that are specific towards breaking down different kinds of protein. I was just, uh, there was, a, there was just recently an online conference called KojiCon, if anyone's interested. There's tons and tons of video online about it, but like, you know, really, really specific conversations about like whether or not you could take crab and lobster shells and break them down with koji and make them soft enough to eat. Uh, and the answer was, sure, if you were able to get a specific strain of koji that produced enough chitinase, which would be the uh, enzyme that would break down the chitin protein, right? Like, th this is all, like, it's so, so, so specific that I don't, uh, I don't do a lot with koji. But koji is really delicious. Do you do stuff with koji? Uh, I've messed around with it a little bit. Uh... By the way, maybe it would be helpful to explain what koji is for sure. folks who is don't that, know Sure. Is that helpful? Sorry. Sorry. Um, thanks, Peter. Uh, do you want to explain it? Or do you want me to do it? Um, so koji is the mold that is responsible for uh, the, a lot of the, the fermentations that you all know and love, like sake, for instance. 
Koji is the mold that converts the starch and the rice into sugars that can then be fermented into alcohol. Um, koji is also the mold that is responsible for miso and for soy sauce because it is not only, while, while a lot of things like yeast, for instance, yeast consumes sugar, right? So in order to ferment and, and, and creates alcohol as a byproduct of that fermentation. So in order to make an alcoholic beverage, you need yeast and you need sugar. Um, in order to get that sugar out of a grain, you need something that creates enzymatic action to convert that starch into sugar. And koji is responsible for that in terms of sake. It can be used on other grains as well. It then also is able to produce enzymes that break down proteins into amino acids. And so that is responsible for creating things like soy sauce and things like miso. But you can also culture koji directly onto things like beets um, because it can function on that starch and it does change the flavor. You can dry age meats with it. You can use it on fish. Um, I recently, I was in Denver last week, um, and my friend Mara King, who had a fermented foods business in Boulder for many years called Azuke that still exists, she does lots of really interesting fermentation stuff. She gave me a taste of some mirin, um, which some people may be familiar with. Mirin is a sweet, uh, uh, is a sweet sort of savory um, liquid condiment that is used in a lot of Japanese cooking and often is, is sort of like sickly sweet, but not traditionally in, in modern production. It ends up being very sweet. She gave me a taste of a mirin that she made using uh, millet and koji, and it, like, it tasted like you could put it into a cocktail. And like, so when she said, here, taste this mirin, in my brain, I thought, oh, cool, this is something I could put into a sauce, or I could put into a miso soup, or I could use in a marinade. It was not going towards beverage, it was going towards food. And then I tasted this, and I was like, oh, man, this would be great in like a whiskey sour. Um, and so there's a lot out there that koji can do. And I'll just add that koji is beautiful. If you, one of the molds that's principally used for koji is uh, Aspergillus orize, and to me, it looks like the Wonder Wheel at night, you know, at Coney Island. It's just this beautiful, I don't know, it's just a beautiful, beautiful little mold. Where do you get it from? So, yeah, so um, koji spores are now becoming more readily available uh, in the U.S. You can order it online. A lot of producers obviously are in Japan because that is the sort of center of a lot of koji usage and there are different kinds of koji that have been bred and coddled to do very specific things either to convert as much starch to sugar as possible or to convert as much protein into amino acids as possible. Um, but in New York you can get it at Calustians. Um And then you can also buy, sometimes you, you will see rice that has been had koji mold grown on it, sold as koji. So if you were to buy the spores, you need to grow it on some kind of a substrate, whether that's on beets or whether you're growing it on rye in your apartment, um, which you can certainly do. I don't have the time to do it right now, and it sometimes it requires a lot more than, say, making just sauerkraut uh, or making cider. It needs You need very specific humidity and temperature controls and things like that to grow it, but you can also just buy it as rice uh, that's already grown on the grain uh, previously and use it in that way. It's more of an advanced ferment. <laughs> but if you do get a hold of the rice, actually, it's pretty much ready to go, and it can be frozen in its stores for quite a few months, so find, find the rice stuff and it's uh, ready to go. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, the, the idea of advanced versus, like, beginner ferments, I think is, you know, 
there are very few things that you could try to ferment at home that are really going to be dangerous for you, right? Like what, what I always tell people when they ask me is like, well, what if it, what if it goes bad? Well, you know, the nose knows. And like you as a human, it's very unlikely if you smell something and it smells gross, don't eat it. Uh, you know, and so hopefully it's something that you haven't spent a ton of money and a ton of time on, and so you don't feel bad just like throwing it out. And if it smells gross, if it grows really grody looking, you know, green and black mold on top, and it's not koji, which when it spoilates sometimes is green and black, um, you know, you probably don't want to eat it. Um, but by and large, like, nothing is going to grow that is like, that a small taste to see if it's okay is going to hurt you. Um, and you can always spit it out. It's not like, you know, foraging deadly mushrooms and like eating one by accident. Um, you might put something gross in your mouth and spit it out and be like, oh God, that sauerkraut turned out terrible because I forgot about it in my closet, uh, but it's not going to hurt you. Yeah. I just mean advances like time, more like yes. time and sometimes set up, you know, equipment that you need. Like home brewing is somewhat advanced because it, or modern home brewing in that you need equipment to you know, to really make what you can buy commercially. Right. So, but there's a ton of easy, you know, yeah. more approachable ferments. Um, thank you for your question about Koji. I think that's a good uh, transition into sort of our Q&A uh, segment. Um, we have, Katie has some uh, cards in the back if people have questions, but I also feel like it is a small enough room. I'm not really worried about people like, you know, you can stand up and if we can't hear you, I'm just going to tell you to talk louder. If anybody has questions. Come on, the Koji question can't be the only question. <laughs> uh, you talked a bit in the beginning of the presentation about how fermented foods make you feel afterwards. And I was wondering if any of the presenters had a, an anecdote or maybe something more in the scientific realm of how fermentation, as opposed to a non-fermented food, affects you, uh, how it makes you feel. I like to think about it as it's taking some work away from your body. So it's breaking down the food before you eat it. And it's just because of that, more easily digestible and it makes the nutrients more bioavailable. Yeah, I, th I think that's a, that's a great point. Um, Lily mentioned it earlier as well about things being more bioavailable. So, you know, I, I find that fermented foods, uh, you know, they do, they do make me feel uh, better. So, like, you know, if you eat a piece of pizza, right, not that there's anything wrong with, like, a dollar slice, like, it has its place, but I find that, like, the idea of the dollar slice is always better than the aftermath of the dollar slice, where you, like, feel like you've got, like, a pit in your stomach. Um, but if you go to a pizza place where they're actually, like, fermenting the dough and doing a long fermentation, um, you know, and then you eat a slice of that pizza, I find it doesn't feel like it's a pit in your stomach. And I, and I think I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, a, a food scientist in that way, but, you know, I, it has to do with the fact that it is sort of pre-fermented for you. And so a lot of those things that are harder to digest become easier to digest. Um, Talking about, you know, Peter mentioned Africa earlier. There's a lot of history both in Africa and in South America of fermented beans, right? Miso is a fermented bean. Beans are, in fact, pretty hard to digest, which is why usually you cook them for a really long time. But if you ferment those beans before you cook them, it makes it much easier for our bodies to digest them. And it doesn't often uh, cause, you know, the song that everybody knows about beans, right? Like if you if you have fermented beans, like you don't you know you don't fart a lot after you eat miso soup, 
Uh, and part of that is that, that those soybeans are like completely broken down into their constituent nutrient parts at that time. You're also feeding the good bacteria in your gut, so it's going to help you poop, which we love to poop. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So uh, how does someone who's a novice know that the nose knows? It's up to you, right? It, it is, to me, it's the same thing that if you take a bite of sauerkraut and say, that is delicious, that's how you know. Whereas if there's a food that you don't like, there's a, there's, you are having some kind of a reaction to that, whether it is a flavor that is unfamiliar or something that your body is not interested in having at that moment. It also is the same as having like cravings, right? Often, if your body is craving something specific, there is a reason for that. Either it is a deficit um, or it is something that your body doesn't, you know, that, that, you, that you want or that you think will make you feel better in that moment. So I guess I believe that everybody's nose does know to a certain extent, and maybe it's about not having the experience, but I think like if you were to be presented with like, if you like fermented foods and you were presented with like sauerkraut and you were presented with like stinky tofu, uh, which is one that I find hard to eat, honestly. Like a Taiwanese like really stinky tofu, I know it's a fermented food and I've eaten it. I find it hard sometimes to eat because my body is not accustomed to it and doesn't really like it. So those sorts of flavors and smells, I think I would probably stay away from. I also think fermentation is really cool because I am not trained as a cook. I just cook at my house. And going through the process of fermentation just forces you to shake off some fear in terms of getting everything perfect, um, not, getting, not letting things get moldy. Um, you really just get to know your food. You get to know what you like. You trust your gut instincts. And you kind of let go of outcomes and focus more on tasting things every day, tuning into how long you like your sauerkraut to sit for, because everyone is different on that one. But I love the way it forces you to shake fear off in the kitchen, for sure. So I have a couple of, of, uh, of questions here, and then we'll see if anybody else has, has any more. Um, so how do you ferment beans? So, you know, miso is one option, um, very long format. Uh, you know, some misos, even young misos, you're talking months of fermentation before you're going to eat them. Um, in that case, what, what you would do, and you can, uh, you know, there are a lot of really great resources for this. I would look to Sander Katz um, and his books uh, as a great place to start, Wild Fermentation uh, being one of them, uh, The Art of Fermentation being another one of his. He's got a couple of others as well. Um, but a really great easy uh, bean ferment at home that I actually I learned from Sandor is it's called akara or akaraje in some uh, cultures. But you would take a bean, like a pinto bean, uh, dry. You can soak it and then soak it overnight in a bowl full of water and then take the beans, strain them. Um, you need a, you need a, a, a decent blender. Um, you know, if it's a $20 blender, you might burn out the motor. I'm just warning you ahead of time. Um, but a, a blender or a good food processor, put the beans in and then pour some of that liquid that you soak them in, in until you can blend it into a paste. Um, and add, uh, add some salt to that. The salt is going to help 
the bacteria. So in that particular ferment, part of the bacteria that you're ending up with is similar to uh, sauerkraut bacteria, which is a lactobacillus, which performs better in a slightly salty environment. The salt will also keep mold, some molds from growing if the environment is a little bit salty. Um, and what I like to do in that is then, so you're gonna, you're gonna mix that together, and again, you can find some recipes for this, but the basic technique is that you're gonna soak beans, you're gonna blend them, you're gonna add some salt, and then when you have that sort of slurry of beans and liquid and salt, you're gonna put it in a jar, and I like to put a rubber band around the jar at that level that the liquid is sitting, and then come back and check on it the next day, and you'll be able to see how much it has risen and how much it has fermented. You don't wanna fill it all the way to the top, because as those microbes are starting to digest some of the starches and some of the proteins, they're gonna give off CO2, which is gonna get trapped in there, so it's gonna expand. Um, so be wary of that. Um, it's also why when you're doing ferments like sauerkraut, like beverages, you don't seal the jars. Uh, if you, I'm sure actually probably on Pinterest, I would hope that there's a section of like fermentation fails. Um, somebody I follow online recently posted one that looked like a, I mean, it looked like a murder scene. They were fermenting uh, hot sauce and had sealed the lids too much and they came back and there was like red splatter like all over their kitchen, which is really funny, but also like, it sucks. Like it's really a pain to clean up. Uh, and then your whole house is gonna smell like fermented hot sauce and you gotta be careful because then you gotta clean it, you, know, you don't wanna touch it and get in your eyes or anything. Um, but anyway, sorry, <laughs> tangent. Um, but then what you do with that sort of fermented bean paste is you can fry it. Uh, you fry it like a falafel, something like that. And, you know, those beans taste delicious. They are sort of pre-fermented, so they are easier to digest. And it also is a great source of non-animal protein um, for you. So that, that's, that's one of the ways that I like, to, I like to ferment beans. Nuts are great to ferment like that, too. I like to make uh, cashew cream cheese. Uh, this is an excellent question. So this one says, I am a novice. Is longer better? Um, no, not necessarily. Uh, so you can all be the judge of this when this panel is over. Uh, at the table back there, I have a sauerkraut that is 14 months old, and I have a sauerkraut that's a couple of weeks old. They're very different. They're not, one is not necessarily better than the other. In terms of how broken down the, um, the building blocks are of that food, yes, the longer you ferment it, the more broken down it's going to be. The longer fermented sauerkraut is much more sour, it's more acidic, uh, and it's also much softer. It's not crisp and crunchy. But as the fermenter, you get to decide what you want out of it. So one of the things that I often will say and suggest to people is like, there's no point during the fermentation that it's gonna hurt you and so you can decide, like kimchi is a perfect example of this, like, or, you know, Jewish pickles, right? Like if you go to the pickle guys on the Lower East Side, the new pickles are the same cucumbers as the full sours and the half sours. They're just on a different time scale. And so if what you really like is a crunchy cucumber that's like a little bit salty and a little bit sour, then a new pickle is what you want to make. And if what you want is a like pickle that is like so sour that you can do shots of that pickle juice like my kids, then maybe you want a full sour. But you can also eat them all along the way. So you could take 50 cucumbers and put them in a jar and start them and then eat some 
and then let them keep getting sourer and eat some and let them keep getting sourer and eat some. And there's also very fast ferments like yogurt. Yogurt is an overnight ferment. Water kefir. Water kefir also can be an overnight ferment. So I think there's a lot of ferments. There are some very fast ferments as well that are easy to do in, in almost like instant satisfaction or at least overnight. Um, here's an awesome question. When cooking with salt, you can add salt and taste it along the way, which you can't really do with fermentation. So this, I think, leads to looking to uh, either people like Peter, who've created a spreadsheet, uh, which perhaps, I don't know if you're willing to share your spreadsheet with people. Yeah, I do actually have it online. So cool. uh, it is on, I mean, I didn't want to be like weirdly promotional. But yeah, it's, it's on my <laughs> website, but I put it there simply because friends were like requesting it. So I'll say it, peterjk.com. And I'm not saying this to drive you to my website because it's not a very interesting website, but it does have the calculator on it. So yeah, awesome. peterjk.com. Uh, so yeah, so I mean, looking at some recipes, I mean, I, you know, I know that I'm sitting here throwing, you know, oh, I'll put a little salt in it. But, but yes, it, it is valuable to look to recipes um, because... Humans have been fermenting for millennia, literally, and so like people have figured this stuff out over time, um, and sometimes that's passed down, right? Like Peter was talking about his family and his mom just like throwing the stuff in there, right? And and I, you know, I would imagine that most people here have a story like that. I mean, my grandmother used to know her cookie recipes in her head, and she would just do it, and she would be like, "Oh, that's enough," and she would toss the stuff in, and you know even though I know that my mom and my aunt stood there one day and made my grandmother, like, before she threw the handful of stuff in, like, they took it and they measured it and wrote it down, it was never quite the same. Um, but, yes, it, it is important, like, from a basic, like, standpoint, if you are going to make something like my basic recipe for a fermented vegetable, say, in, uh, in a salt brine, like, if you're going to make, like, cucumber pickles, is to make a brine that's 5% salt. Um, and that usually I would do that by weight, um, which I know is more specific than like I know that my like Jewish great grandparents were not weighing the water and weighing the salt. Um, they had some other way to measure it, right? Um, whether that was they knew that the barrel, you took two scoops of salt or whatever that was like, but that was what they had sort of figured out and come to whether they knew it or not, was that it was about a 5% salinity that was the right amount to keep stuff from growing that you didn't want. Um, and mostly that's yeast when you're doing like that sort of pickle. If yeast grows on top, then it will produce enzymes that are going to make the vegetables soft and sort of taste bready, which again, like you can eat them, but nobody wants like a soft bready cucumber pickle. Like that's gross. You want a snappy, like sour cucumber pickle. Um, another thing that's important to keep in mind as you start doing this stuff is that uh, lactobacillus, which is one of the, the easiest ones, again, that's sauerkraut, that's fermented vegetables, that's, uh, that's sour pickles, is uh, anaerobic. So you do not want any oxygen. And so you don't want a piece of cucumber sticking up out of your brine because that will draw mold. There's molds all around us and yeast all around us in the air. It just needs to land on something that it can colonize. And a piece of vegetable sticking up from your ferment is a great place for those molds to be like, all right, this is it. We got food. We got water. It's all we need. And to proliferate. And it's not going to make your ferment taste very good. For that, it can be helpful to have good rocks. <laughs> yes. Rocks I, work great. I made that mistake recently. I made some uh, Israeli pickled veggies 
and my cats were playing with a toy. I didn't really realize it, but they bumped all my ferments on the ground, and one of them got moldy because threw some things around. It was sticking out, and I was a little sad, but it's okay. There's a question here about thoughts on expiration dates. Uh, So um, I would would point out that there's a difference between an expiration date and a best-by date, and I would refer back to my nose-nose point. Um, You know, food in this country is often has a best buy date in order to sell more food uh, in large part Uh, or because in some cases, right, it is best by that date, right? If you are someone who is selling uh, kimchi, for instance, you might have a very specific flavor and texture that you think is optimal and that's when you want your customers to consume it and then you want them to buy more so that they consume it at that optimal flavor point. If you leave it in the back of the refrigerator, it is going to continue to ferment. If it is a live fermented product, it's going to continue to ferment. It's going to continue to change. In many cases, that will mean that it becomes more sour, and like I said, it becomes softer. And so it just requires thinking about it a little differently. Um, You may want to not eat it raw on a bowl, the way Lily was talking about, if it's gotten soft and it is super, super sour, but you might want to put it in your chicken soup at that point. Uh, I'll just add this anecdote that I mentioned uh, On Food and Cooking is really one of my favorite food books, and it was a great pleasure and honor in my life to work alongside Harold to get BOFAD going and became good friends with him. Uh, But one thing, Harold was working on an article, I think for Lucky Peach, on expiration dates and canned foods, and he was doing an experiment with spam. And so he actually uh, sourced spam of all different kinds of, from all these different years. And we did a side-by-side tasting of like 25-year-old spam up to like <laughs> new spam. And it was like the vintage spam, you know. And I would say that uh, it was definitely a revelatory experience because the spam was like, I mean, the reason why they have that date is because it's no longer what the manufacturer anticipates or wants you to taste. It was a very different product, and it became this, like, really silky, like, foie gras like, spam product. It was, like, really delicious, um, but, you know, different. And so, yeah, I would say I actually find it interesting to find um, really long-expired, especially canned foods and fermented foods, uh, because it doesn't go bad. It's just, it's just gets different. Sometimes really interesting. Have you ever watched those YouTube videos of people buying old army canned food? opening up and trying it at their house. It's so fun to watch. So fun. Like super old MREs. All yes, right. exactly. So I mean, there, there is a culture, right, in, like, in, you know, in France and Spain and Portugal of saving tinned fish for a really long time um, and eating like four, five, ten-year-old tinned fish because it does, it does change. Now, obviously, there are some food safety things to be concerned about, like if your can is all like bulgy and stuff, like don't eat it because uh, that's a that that is a sign of botulism. Um, but if it's not, you know, if, if a can is sealed, that can is sealed. The other thing to consider is that companies have to pay to have their products tested for years. So if someone is launching a food company and they want to launch it next year, that means that they have already had to have years of a lab testing their food or testing their product. Um, to confirm its expiration date, which is expensive. It's really expensive. So sometimes a company can only afford to do that for two years, and so their expiration date is two years, and that can be a reason sometimes. 
Got it. Um, there's a there's a question here about kvass. Uh, so uh, what is it? What does kvass taste like? You'll get to taste some of mine. Um, kvass can taste like a lot of different things. There are there's beet kvass and there's also bread based kvass that often is made from rye bread. Um, years and years ago, I traveled in Ukraine, uh, and it's also true in, in other Eastern European countries where you can buy kvass like on the street. Um, there are these, you know, what, what was what was then in Ukraine. Now it's hard to say if it's you know the, if it's still the same given supply chain concerns around the war and stuff. But there were these giant what looked like ex-military trailers that were painted yellow, that were chained to like telephone poles. And they had a little lock and a little hatch that would be opened up and there'd be like a little old man or old woman who would like show up and unlock the thing and they were like giant kegs of kvass. And I don't know if they like switched them out or if like the bigger kvass truck showed up and like filled it up or what. But you could walk up and people would bring their own their own bottles. So you'd bring your own like one liter plastic bottle and be like, I'd like a liter of kvass and you'd pay them whatever it was. And it was, you know, it was this fermented bread. The way that I make mine, I save the rinds from all my breads and I let them dry out um, because you don't want any mold in there. If there's too much, uh, if there's too much humidity on your bread ends when you save them, they will grow mold. Bread is a great, a great source, a great place to grow mold. So I make sure that they're all kind of dried out and they're not moldy. I then bake them and roast them in the oven until they get dark. Uh, and then I stuff them in a jar and I add a tablespoon of my sourdough starter. You can also use whey as a, as a starting point to get some, some microbial action in there. Um, and then I add some sugar, uh, and then sometimes I'll add fruit to it as well. Um, you know, something that we didn't talk a ton about up here was uh, we, we touched on like using waste product. So um, my son is obsessed with mangoes, eats dried mangoes, eats fresh mangoes. And so I save all my mango peels and I save them in a Ziploc bag in the freezer. And then when it's time to make kvass, I stick those in there as well. Um, because the peels have a ton of flavor. They also have some, uh, they have yeast on there. And kvass is, is really like there's multiple microbial things happening in there. There's yeast that's gonna ferment the sugar in there and give you some effervescence and also give you a tiny bit of alcohol, not a ton. Um, and then you've also got the lactobacillus which is gonna ferment the starches in there and give you acidity in the form of lactic acid. Um, so, you know, again, you can find specific, more specific recipes, but that's how, you know, so kvass, I describe it as bread soda. So like if you use a really strong rye bread, it's like having a rye soda. Kind of. Um, and I think that that, you know, I mean, Mary, like, your book has lots of flavor profiles that aren't really available commercially um, that you can find in beverages. And so that's one of the other great things about fermentation at home is, like, you can really control those flavors. And, like, if you love cardamom, you can put cardamom in your kvass. Uh, you know, like, you can, you know, if you love star anise, you can put star anise in your kvass. You can do all these different experiments with that, and that you're going to access flavors that are not commercially available, in part because they might not be commercially viable, but also just because people might not have made it. Um, I, that's a, an excellent question. So, for, if anybody, the, the question was, um, what is the responsibility of the recipe creator for providing uh, the background, I guess, and sort of like the cultural uh, implications or cultural history of that recipe. Um, I, it's an excellent question, and um, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that I have like a perfect answer to that question. I, I think that the responsibility um, is to provide 
as much information as possible. And I think it's important to recognize that if you are presenting a recipe that is not necessarily of your own cultural background, to indicate that um, and to be open to the fact that what you are presenting is an interpretation, potentially, of that recipe, right? Like, I told you guys about Akara as a recipe and, like, that I've made it using fermented beans, but it is not part of my cultural heritage of fermentation. Um, so I am sharing my experience of it and my enjoyment of it um, and hopefully could help point towards more specific, like, historical, like, ethnographic information about it. I do deal with this. I think that my recipes are specific because I'm trying to make recipes that are healthy and a little more convenient so that you can truly fit them into your life um, and make healthy food delicious and not overwhelming. If I cannot change a recipe to be more healthy and convenient, fit a certain dietary restriction, or like improve it just to fit within my own life, like improve it for my use, then I don't feel like I should be recreating anything. Um, but if I do that, I definitely try to let people know where it's coming from and also why I've tweaked things. Because um, like I have celiac disease, some ferments, I want them to be gluten-free, but the original fermentation isn't. And that's a the only reason why I would redo something. Uh, I mean, I think uh, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm generally pretty forgiving with this, but I would just say my general thought on it is anybody putting a recipe out there needs to approach it with humility. And I think that uh, not every format has the room to tell the full like, background story, and not everybody wants to hear the full background story all the time for everything. But there are certain times when you do present a recipe that is not humble, and that would be like if you're, say, if you're presenting some fermentation technique as though you had invented it, even right. though it is millennia old, then that is not exhibiting humility when you do that. Uh, and I think uh, similarly, I think there, was, there have been examples when like, there was that uh, the, the stew recipe in the New York Times when you know, it, was, uh, it was essentially riffing off of an Indian stew and I think the fact that it was presented as though it was sort of an original creation was running afoul of it. I also do believe in cutting people some slack and giving them a chance to correct themselves because I think we shouldn't be like in the business of like assume good intentions, right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that's, it's kind of like a vague set of rules but I just say approach it with humility. Everybody should, be, should have the ability to present recipes or ideas from other cultures. It's beautiful actually. It's a way to understand each other. Uh, but, yeah, um, but approach it with humility. Cool. Uh, well, I want to taste some ferments. Do you guys want to taste some ferments? Can I ask you guys one question while we're up here? I have a question for you guys. Yeah. Um, are there any problems or things that you've run into with fermentation that you haven't been able to solve? Uh, I would say that I have tried many, many times with, like, mediocre success to make tempeh at home. Um, tempeh is one that I find to be very difficult. I love tempeh. I love homemade tempeh. I find the timing of it, like, there's a... And it may also just be, like, the specific microbial makeup of, like, my 
uh, of like my house and stuff. Um, because what can happen with tempeh is that there are there is other bacteria. It's the bacteria that's responsible for natto. If anyone's familiar with natto, which is a very stringy kind of like. Uh, snot-textured uh, fermentation of soybeans from Japan that I also find delicious, that can infect your tempeh. And so instead of ending up with this like beautiful mushroomy block that you can brown, you end up with this kind of like in-between mush uh, that is not as delicious. So that's one of the things that I have not had a lot of success with. Well, I'll say from a home brewer standpoint, but also commercial as well, that since we live in this urban center, wild fermentation, there's like a lot of wild fermented beverages that just can't be done here. So, uh, I struggled with making, uh, I mentioned this before, but baton de manioc, which means uh, cassava sticks in French, but it's something I really enjoyed when I lived in Cameroon. And it's, yeah, like grated cassava that's fermented, and then uh, you wrap it in banana leaves and steam it. And at its best, it's like this really like chewy, uh, like chewier than mochi, like chewier than like a rice cake, but uh, it's chewy and has like a lot of like cheesy notes to it, and it's just really delicious. And I haven't quite gotten it, and I don't know if it's just uh, the kind of cassava I'm getting here or just the the microbiome. Uh, and then also injera, I've had a, I've managed to make really delicious injera, and I love making like 100% teff injera. Uh, usually in Jerry you buy in restaurants, you get in restaurants is like mostly wheat with like a touch of teff. Teff is like this tiny grain that is really amazingly uh, flavorful. Uh, but I haven't been able to get the structural integrity of making the injera hold together. Um, I have found that if you do try to make injera, uh, an electric cooktop with like even heat all over is a very helpful thing to have if you ever want to try doing that. But yeah, those are the two that sort of have escaped me. I have... Definitely over fermented injera, tough injera in my house, and the smell is oh, it gets very gross. strong. <laughs> for sure, definitely. Um, well, uh, thank you everybody for coming and supporting this work, supporting Heritage Radio Network and Farm to People. Uh, the chef here has prepared a really interesting menu featuring a bunch of different ferments. Uh, I'll be over there. I have some, like I said, some sauerkraut, some kvass for you guys to try. If anyone's interested in my book, Vinegar Revival, um, I have copies of it over there. And obviously, I think we'll all be here for a little bit. If anybody has any further questions that you want to, like, you know, stick Feast your ears is powered by Simplecast. After the panel. Thanks Thank for you. listening to Heritage Radio. Now. Thank you. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.